Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, Feelin' Film listeners. Welcome to this week's show. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend, co-host, and a man that I truly hope would not lead me to my doom for the sake of some clicks, Patrick. Not normally, but if I did, I would definitely not use windsock puppets to do it. What? 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 What's wrong with the windsock puppets? They're brilliant. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, we've already got a debate brewing, folks. You're going to want to stick around. Well, with the turn of the new year, we are going to take a few weeks and focus on some of the films in 2022 that for whatever reason we didn't get to cover on an opening week. And to kick things off, we are here to chat about Jordan Peele's summer sci-fi horror blockbuster, Nope. This is your spoiler warning. We will be talking in detail, so pretty please walk away now from your radio, from your podcast app, whatever your listening device is. Stop this. Go watch the movie. It is streaming on, what did I tell you it was streaming on? Peacock or Paramount Plus? Peacock. 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 Streaming on Peacock. (laughs) <laughs> and oh my goodness <laughs> and uh it, I, total track everything's gone everything i i was thinking is out of my mind with that <laughs> yes gotcha. nailed it i was gonna say <laughs> yes go see this movie you can watch it streaming or rent it or whatever but go check it out and then come back and give us a listen you have been warned well patrick the reason that we are talking about this is mainly because I did a rewatch. And when I first saw Nope over the summer, it was on our list, short list of things that we would potentially cover. We're both, we've had some enjoyment with Jordan Peele's films. We were both kind of a little bit more lukewarm on us, but we both really enjoyed Get Out. We've liked some of his Twilight Zone stuff. We think that he's a very smart guy. And so he's interesting as a filmmaker. But I remember I saw Nope, and I was like, Nope. (laughs) Sorry. Everybody has to make the joke at least once. And I just wasn't really into it that much. And so we decided not to do anything with it over the summer. So, uh, you know, fast forward to now. It's award season. I'm trying to cram before our nominations went up for Seattle Film Critics Society. And I thought, maybe let me give this a a rewatch just to see if... It's any different for me. And holy cow, was it. I really fell in love with it. I thought it was so much better. I had just, uh, I think, a much richer experience knowing the twists and kind of knowing what he was going for and then watching it with that in mind versus knowing those things and thinking back to my experience. Two different types of ways of engaging with the movie. And then I was able to watch the hour-long making-of documentary that comes with the disc. It's also available on digital if you buy this movie. And it is one of the absolute best making-ofs that I've ever watched. It's outstanding stuff. And I just really fell for this. And I mean, it has rocketed up to probably being in my top 10 for the year. And so you were gracious enough to say, absolutely, let's give it a shot. So there's my preface. And now I get to ask you and cross my fingers... (laughs) How did it go for you? I'm hoping it went well, but let me have it. 
Yeah, it did. It was it was good. It wasn't great for me. And I think maybe that I'm on the train that you were on the first time you saw it. There's a lot to be said about a writer, director, producer, cinematographer. You know, Jordan Peele does it all in all three of his movies that we've seen. And I can appreciate that. When you're a creative person and you have ideas, you want to execute them in a way that's unique to you. I know back in, I think, 2019, 2020, I don't remember, he had some controversial words about probably not hiring a white guy in a lead role and that created some ruckus and whatnot and whatever you're going to be a director you're going to be a writer you're going to hire who you want for the for the reasons that you want and it's no secret that the movies he makes are making a point beyond just the story they're telling and nope is the same way it's i think more subtle i think it's and for me that's actually good i like when you're not banging it over the head he didn't and isn't with get out and us but they're a little bit more obvious in those whereas this feels more like a modern day a modern take on a classic sci-fi story and when i walked away from this viewing what i thought to myself was this would make a really fantastic episode of the twilight zone because of everything that is involved with it and that's not bad but one of the things that I found troublesome about the Twilight Zone, the Rod Serling-led 50s and 60s, was in the latter seasons when they went to hour-long episodes and they missed their sweet spot of 22, 23 minutes, telling a story really concise. Nope was not long. It was entertaining. I could really flow with each act. I liked the way it was divided up into chapters. In some ways, though, it felt as though I was getting an really kind of a, a little bit more bloated story that could have been tightened up quite a bit in terms of a beginning, middle, and end. And I think some of what he was doing in terms of social commentary and the ideas that come out of it that are could be considered brilliant and very you know intentionally thought out make the story a little too long for me. I, I think it's got enough there that the story itself is fine. And I think that is what makes a story that has some kind of commentary attached to it so good is if you're relying on the commentary to really push your story forward it's not a strong story just like when you're relying on nostalgia and you're leaning back into oh look that's the millennium falcon oh look there's c-3po if you're really relying on that kind of stuff your story is not that that good. What I will say is that Nope is a good story. And so from beginning to end, I liked what I was seeing. I love the way that he sort of twists and turns a little bit of the idea of what if UFOs came to visit us? What if you, and he asked the question, what if UFOs were territorial? Which is a different idea to think about. We always think about UFOs as being, oh my gosh, they're coming to abduct us and take us away because they're the superior beings. But you never think about the fact that they might be territorial. You might think of them as invading Earth and taking over, but what about a desert in California? <laughs> and and why? So some of those things I think were hitting the mark for me, but some of them weren't enough for me to really feel like, man, that's a really fresh take on a ufo story it wasn't bad it wasn't fantastic and so i imagine that when i dive into the special features when i watch the making of it's going to add a level of respect for the movie and i'll probably appreciate it more but i think that's a default position with a lot of your more thought-provoking films 
someone that doesn't like Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, watch the behind the scenes, watch the making of, and you're going to appreciate the multi-layered stuff that he put in it because you can't see all that in a two to three hour movie. Same thing with Nope. Is I can appreciate it. And, and Jordan Peele is still a solid writer director. This just didn't hit all the notes for me in terms of the story that it was trying to tell, which is kind of that classic sci-fi with a modern twist. Although there were pieces and parts that I found really, really good. And we can talk more about those as we get into the discussion. But that's kind of my initial takeaway. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I totally feel like that is where I came to this movie the first time around. I will say it does play incredible on the big screen. And so it's unfortunate that anyone is having to experience it for the first time or only time on a smaller scale simply because he is really going for gigantic visuals and that Steven Spielbergy blockbuster feel and he nails it. It sounds and looks incredible. Speaking of Interstellar, I think Hoyt Van Hoytma also was the cinematographer for Interstellar, if I'm not mistaken, and he is the one who <laughs> shot Nope. So uh, when you watch the special features, you get to see a lot of his processes. And oh, man, you can really understand why the guy is just a wizard. But that being said, I feel like everything you are reacting to is totally solid and makes perfect sense uh, as to like a first time around. And then especially with the difference of kind of he's merging different types of commentaries. So, I mean, you have the whole UFO concept and this idea of spectacle and being obsessed with it. And then you also have this, you know, tangential storyline about a quote, bad miracle in the Gordy idea and the, the TV show and how that affected this little jupe character as he grew up. And so you have multiple different ideas that he is playing with that are kind of almost equally on their own, somewhat cerebral. <laughs> and then you've got to take those, let them work around in your brain and figure them out while also enjoying it from just the fun part of the movie that is you know, getting to spend time with OJ and Emerald as a brother and sister who seem to be like their best friends at times and really have this, I thought, outstanding relationship, really good performances. I just, I had a lot of fun watching the two of them together, working through this, you know, family tragedy that they had to get past and how they had different views on how they would move forward all while this stuff is going on around them. So yeah, there's a lot going on for sure. and. I think the the biggest part of this is probably this mainly a story about the spectacle. And Jordan Peele has said that as much in many of the interviews, even Daniel Kaluuya, I think it was in the making of that I watched maybe where they were talking about this idea of human addiction to spectacle, you know, watching a train wreck. And and Jordan Peele had said that. He's like, you know, we wanted to make a movie that captures that feel of you're driving down the highway. Why is it you slow down and you can't look away? What is it about that? And what happens if that takes you down this path to where you're wanting to make money off of it or wanting to become famous off of it? And how can we make that into both a sci-fi movie and a horror at the same time. 
and Kaluuya had said that they really wanted to make a movie that was so entertaining that they just wanted people to be present and enjoy it. And almost like, like the spectacle itself, they wanted the movie to be a spectacle in that sense that people were with not being taken out of it by things around them, but completely immersed in it. And so there's this feeling of audiences getting swept up in it. And there's lots of little digs. Um, you know, the, the TMZ thing is a big one <laughs> towards the end. I thought that was pretty funny myself. I cracked up when the guy showed up and he, and it was very clear that it became this TMZ person who was trying to get a video of what was going on at the risk of, you know, completely ignoring any sort of warnings that he was given just because he wanted to achieve a thing. But the whole thing revolves around like Emerald and OJ doing the same thing. Did you feel like there was any point where maybe you were connected with them and you would have done the same things? Was there a point where you checked out and you thought that they were going a little bit too far? Well, I think that Peel does a great job of setting up the motive early on with those first two shots of OJ and his dad. And then six months later, he's selling horses. So he lets us spend time with this family in order to help us understand that the livelihood of their business that's been around for generations is at stake. And I think this second part of that cocktail is when M comes in as like this energetic, almost like a promoter to the scene and says, look, we can actually nail this. We can do this if we tell ourselves and we, we set this up right. And that conversation inside the electronics store, I think, was really pivotal because they were committing to it. And that the dialogue between the two of them, she really, I think, convinced him that this is actually a good thing, not for fame, not for, for notoriety, but really so we can get the shot, so we can put our names on history. And it's no secret that that sort of subtly is playing into this idea that they're a solely owned black, they're one of the few, if not the only black owned horse ranch or horse wranglers. And I think this is preserving that legacy. I don't think it's meant to be translated as, hey, we're the first black people to capture a UFO on film. No, I think it's a matter of saying, look, we're going to tie this not to ourselves, but to the legacy that we've left. And so it's going to help kind of reinvigorate what we do. In fact, I, I would imagine that if I'm either of these two characters, even with the loss of all of my horses, what a great story to tell. You've got this shot of an alien that you can tell the story. You know how we got this horse? Well, it wasn't from the alien because it took all of our other ones. I mean, it's a great way to start the story. And that to me in my head kind of parallels how M is essentially just reciting what her dad would say as she introduces their company to any new client, which makes that little, little great, that extra great that she forgets so much more fun because it's just recitation at that point. She doesn't, I think she believes it, but she's really just like, she doesn't have her originality. This photo allows her to have that originality as for herself and for him, for OJ, it allows him to keep the restoration of their, their namesake intact, but for different reasons. So they have to evolve just like any other like business or any other legacy, they may not be the Wranglers or known for that. They're known for capturing this alien on film. Oh, and by the way, we also do this other stuff. So 
I think that the motivations are pretty genuine. I think I was in more for just the spectacle of just going along for the ride and being like, <laughs> hope you capture it. And if you don't, that's okay. Because at the end of the day, I'm turning this off and going back to my life. I'm not going to be thinking about, hmm, what happened to OJ? What happened to him? I'm, I'm just in it for the, the casual, cas, casualness of, of, the, uh, of the spectator. Yeah, I think to some extent that's maybe what Angel's character is representing for us, the worker at Fry's who is clearly bored and looking for something that is going to bring excitement in his life. He's just a very curious person. And so he latches on to this idea immediately. And he's like, hey, can I be your friend? (laughs) I don't think he actually says that, but he's like, hey, can I install this for you? Hey, can I do this? Hey, can I do that? He very clearly wants to hang around. And then he becomes extremely interested in it, obviously, to a sad end. And just wants to be a part of this thing, right? And it's almost like going viral in a way where a trend starts and you see it kind of catching on or you can see the beginnings of something that is going to grab this huge general population's attention and you want to be part of it. You want to go along for that. And so I can understand why we have all of these people who are not in this at all for scientific glory. They're in it for social media fame. They're in it for YouTube. They're in it for financial profit, not for terrible reasons. They don't want to just get rich. Like they want to save their ranch and their business. So there are good reasons behind what they are wanting to accomplish, but it's easy to get caught up in that. And I think start to ignore potential signs of danger because there is a point in this movie where it becomes clear that what they have discovered is essentially an animal. And I love the setup here. This is where I think Peel is just such a smart guy and his movies, his stories will always intrigue me because they have this potential. He, He even uses it in the script. He takes the idea of how a few years back UFO history was declassified and the government or the military made it available for the public. And then they renamed them UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. And so to take that and then kind of twist it into this, okay, but what if it's like not an actual vehicle? It is the an animal and it operates like this animal. You were talking about it earlier, about how it's this territorial thing. Like, it has set up a feeding ground in this desert. That is what it is there to to be. The moment you realize that, and here's something I missed in my first viewing. There was a shot where we first see the Aqua Dolce, that's the name of the desert, the, the ranch. I forget what the ranch is called. Something, the star lasso experience right we can see it off in the distance we see oj and emerald at their house and they're looking out over the valley and you can see like the first time well maybe it's not the first time but it's it's the feeding is happening prior to the big finale and it's so far out in the distance i didn't even really catch it the first time i watched the movie but then when i saw it through the second time i was like oh my gosh like you're watching something clearly happening that is not normal And it is probably dangerous. And then your reaction is, okay, we need more cameras (laughs) because we got to get this. Not how can I 
sell this ranch or move my horses and get to safety, right? And I think that is part of what Peel is wanting us to deal with in a way is in you know through entertaining means, but he wants us to confront that part of ourselves yeah. that says, well, what would you do? I mean, I think I might do the same thing they did. I think I might push it because I'm probably not respecting the unknown enough. And that's a, a likely result. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that, that human nature tells us that we push the envelope until we get burned. And let's just take a basic truth. We all go over the speed limit. And for a lot of us, we have in our heads that there is a certain number of miles over that you can go without getting pulled over because apparently we know everything about the law enforcement system. That's, there's some rule written that you can go nine miles over and not get, not worry about it. But we continue to go even further over that. And it's only until we get caught that we're like, oh my gosh. I mean, we've all had that sinking feeling of when a cop pulls us over, we know exactly what we did. We can't get out of it. We just apologize, show them our license and registration. Hopefully it's not expired. Show them our insurance. Hopefully we have it. And then we mull over it for like the next hour of like, what did I do wrong? And then we go through like the five stages of grief where we deny it. And we get mad at the cop. Like, how could he? I wasn't going that fast, even though I was going 25 over. I mean, everybody goes 25 over. And then the sensitivity wears off after maybe a month. <laughs> you've paid off the ticket or you've gone to court and now you're back to doing it. So what lesson have you learned? And I think in the same way, when it comes to those risky things that we do, knowing the parameters, knowing the safety restraints, we push because we think we're actually immortal in some ways. I think we just don't have, as human beings, we don't have, at least at all times, I think we generally have a good sense of what our limits are. Like I don't go jumping off of buildings on a regular basis because I think I'm going to live if I do it. But there are things that we have as a slippery slope and a sliding scale of like, maybe I should. Could I could I go a little bit further? Could I go a little bit further? And they're, they're moral things, they're physical things, they're emotional things. In this case, watching OJ and seeing how they respond to it, there is actually a distance that's probably allowing them to, to have that curiosity. They have their horse that just takes off and then they see and hear the spectacle in the distance. I don't think it's attractive. I think it's curious. And then when that's coupled with, um, with uh, I think it's Jupe's kids that come in and, and try to scare him, now it becomes a war. Even um, M says, oh, it's on. We're going to do a prank war. It's going to get crazy. And I think those are the types of things that allow us as human beings to sort of integrate into the things that we probably shouldn't, that kind of veer our decision-making into a more selfish or a more emotionally charged uh, point. So when we move to what they start doing, by the time we get to the end of the movie, we look back and we go, how in the world did you get to this point? Well, it was just a little little, little adjustment and another little incremental. adjustment. And then incremental. And I think that's why, I think that's what, what Peel is showing us here is that incremental adjustments can get us from moral to immoral pretty quickly or uh, good to bad or legal to illegal or safe to dangerous. It doesn't have to be all at once. It doesn't, I mean, it's, it's like putting the lobster in a, the live lobster in a uh, boiling pot of water. He's going to jump right out or the frog or whatever. But if you want to cook it, put him in a cold thing, cold water, and then slowly let that thing start boiling. 
and he's not going to know what hit him. I think that's what's on display here is they found in their story incremental ways that eventually lead to what we see is the spectacle that we're really enjoying of like how do they capture this this monster on film and then that's when we get into the what I would say the impractical or at least the improbable windsock and the creative ways of like okay how do we do this so I, I think the absurdity of it is what's entertaining where I think this is where Peel succeeds and fails with me because the absurdity is there and I'm okay with it and I enjoy it. At the same time, I'm asking too many questions of like, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And I think it's because I've gotten a little bit of that throughout the movie of you've given me some intrigue. This is not just a ship. This is a living being. Well, living beings should have motives or should they? And then then he gives us that subplot with the monkey, which really kind of throws a, a monkey wrench into the into the storytelling in terms of just asking more questions. And I think that's where some of my struggle was because I started settling in for a straight through sci-fi adventure and you start throwing these sort of unconventional methods. But I, I can appreciate how we get from point A to point B, specifically through OJ and M's uh, journey to start doing what they're doing. Yeah, so... You said a lot there. I'm going to try and try. I was making middle notes. Uh, One of the things that you were talking about that I think is key is that great scene where the the kids from Jupes come to prank them. Yeah. First of all, that movie played or that scene played like gangbusters in the theater. We all just leapt out of our seats because you don't know yet what is happening. And Peel, I just thought it was such a brilliantly constructed thing because he's playing with your preconceived notions of what you think a UFO movie is going to be. And so you get these like little aliens. And so it's a fun jump scare, right? And a twist. But then he also uses it as a way to show one of those incremental things because what happens is The first thing OJ does when he thinks he's being watched is he pulls out his cell phone and starts to film the alien, the the thing that he thinks is watching him. He doesn't run out of the barn to safety in the wide open space, right? He pulls out his cell phone and he wants to capture it. And that is just one of those like, Little things that it shows. Okay, now what's going to happen when they figure out what the thing is? They're going to do the exact same thing, right? They're going to continue pushing that further and further. And so I loved that moment in the movie for for those reasons, because I thought it had such a great kind of double use uh, for what it was trying to achieve. The other part about the wanting to get it on film and kind of being caught up in the spectacle themselves and not having a desire for anything other than their own curiosity, social media, potential money. There is a moment. And I think it's a very human thing where eventually you realize that there has to be a bigger reason. And so they've hired antlers Holst phenomenal character, by the way, they go, they hire this acclaimed Hollywood old wildlife cinematographer. I love this performance. He is just so crusty. (laughs) and so egotistical, you know, and all he wants is to get like the perfect shot, which is what they need. And there he's willing to sacrifice others to get it as well. And so 
he's another commentary Peel is making while also making a comment on the fact that in order to get this, he has to use real film, right? Which Peel is shooting on uh, a lot of the movie. So there's like a, a lot of different things being played with here, like underneath the surface of the main plot. And they're, they're, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when they discover that he has this real camera and all the power goes out and Emerald's like, didn't I tell you this mofo was going to come up here with a non-electrical camera? Let's go, boy. And then they just do the like slapping high fives to each other. I, I just think that that is like one of the best movie moments of the entire year for me because the the performance and like the passion and like the the love and the enjoy excitement, everything coming off of those two characters is just fantastic. And so, of course, this gets pushed all the way to they get to the point where he doesn't have to keep going, right? It is clearly beyond getting the shot now, right? This thing is eating people and is on a rampage. It has already like covered their house in blood and metal and it's gross. Very horror movie-esque. Awesome. <laughs> it, it looks awesome. It looks like the shining only, you know, outside of the house instead of inside. Yeah. And, but he is obsessed, right? And it's like these layers of different obsessions. And so it's funny because M and OJ, in my opinion, have then reached the point where they're like, okay, now we're done with the spectacle. And I don't remember if it's M or OJ, but one of them even says, what we document, it's going to do some good, right? Besides the money and fame, it could save some lives, even save Earth, right? They start to understand that there's a bigger thing. But at that point, Holst is involved and he's earlier stages in the spectacle, right? Like, so he's obsessed. And so he keeps pushing the envelope further and further to the point where he makes it worse. And yeah, what's that? Well, I was just thinking that you know, her comment, it feels like such a bad justification. I mean, saving that Earth? is not the, as a, as a tertiary reason, like, Hey, oh, we can yeah. do this. We can do this. Oh, and by the way, you know what? I'm going to justify really everything cool. we're doing by saying it could actually Bonus. save Earth. You know that? Whatever, dude. No, no. <laughs> Hilarious. But, and again, it speaks to the fact that this is how we think. We find altruism, not at the forefront, but at a tertiary level after it satisfied others that are related to us and after it satisfied us. So if I get mine and I, and the people around me get theirs, then you know what? Even if some things go wrong, if it helps others after that, I'm okay with it. You know? So it's, it's this weird kind of justification of let's think about this. Can we, can we inverse those? Can we say, let's protect the planet. And if we get a picture, great. No, we can't. And because it just, reinforces one of the messages in, in this movie, which is great. But on a conventional level, you're like, no, no, not at all. Nope. Yeah, I'll choose my note for the episode. There you go. You had to get one in at least. It's it's really interesting. I just I think it's a lot of fun watching the different ways in which people get caught up in spectacle in the movie and different characters. And so to tie yeah. in the Gordy story I'll kind of run through what I understand it as because I didn't the first time. So you may not. So, you know, if I'm telling you things you already know, just pretend I'm not that I sound really smart. So essentially the way this whole plot line works and I had to piece it together. So don't feel bad if you're listening to this. I'm not talking to say just to Patrick. If you didn't catch all of this and if you did, like I said, just, you know, 
just let my let me feel good about myself. <laughs> um, is that you know, Little Jupe was on this show. He was famous for this performance of a character on a TV show called Kid Sheriff, and then he was on this Gordy's Place episode, and because Gordy is an animal, in which humans tried to control and dictate what animal was doing, even though that's not their role, Gordy ended up going on a rampage and becoming enraged. Hmm. Wonder what other animal's going to do that later on. And he ends up killing everyone that looked at him, everyone that was involved running around, basically making eye contact with him. The only thing that saves little jupe is that he is underneath that table blocked by the hanging down cloth. He doesn't make eye contact with Gordy. In the very end, you know, obviously, Gordy comes. Gordy gives him a fist bump because I think Gordy senses his calmness and, and his fear, but like he is not aggressive in any way. He's not, it's like that whole like, don't run from certain animals idea. Right. He's just right. totally frozen. Gordy gets shot, shot down, which A, is traumatizing to Lil Jupe. So now, Lil Jupe's career is over. He's always going to be known as the kid that was there and survived the Gordy rampage. So we fast forward. So what has he become? Well, what he has become is someone who has to profit off of the one thing that he had in his life, which was this past. So he is profiting off of his own traumatic and others traumatic event of this Gordy rampage. We see this when Emerald and OJ go to the lasso play. Why do I keep forgetting what it's called? Whatever it's called, his the freaking sheriff's land or whatever. You remember what it's called? I call it, I call it Star Killer, but <laughs> okay, that's what it Star became. Killer, Star Killer base. <laughs> wow, yeah, no, uh, that's what it was. It was... Well, whatever it, it, his name of his like little area, the the park is called. He had this room where people could go and see memorabilia from Kid Sheriff and even memorabilia from like the Gordy stuff, right? Like it's set up in which he can, he's, it's exploitation that he is profiting on. And he pushes that to the limit to with this experience with Jean Jacket where he has all of these people watching. He's sacrificing the horses and I truly believe that it has gotten to the point where the reason we see him look up, I think it's showing us this character that has come to believe that he can understand the animal. He thinks, like Gordy, that they have created a bond, right? And I can now do this. I can look at you and you're not going to take me. Because I'm different. Because we have an understanding. I'm feeding you. I've got this. I've set this whole thing up for you. And the reality is, like what happened to Gordy is, this is a wild animal that is not there for our entertainment. And when we try to control it and we try to make it fit into a way that is going to profit us in some way or benefit us in some way, that we're probably just going to get. <laughs> because ultimately, <laughs> it is existing... And it sees us as food, not friends. And that is kind of how that whole 
situation ties together. And, you know, he does that, of course, with the lingo of bad miracle, which is really catchy, but I think a total doesn't make sense, honestly, to me, like the way I, I've really thought hard about those words. And I've actually looked them up in the dictionary, kind of like, am I missing something? I don't really think that it works. But it, like I said, it's a cool phrase to like rolls off the tongue. Oh, it's a bad miracle. No, there's nothing miraculous about it. <laughs> it is. It's just bad. It's bad luck. <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah. a bad discovery. Uh, but anyway, so that's kind of how it works together. And I thought once I understood that it was all tied into this idea of spectacle and profiting off of it, but in a little bit different situations that were kind of being slammed together in this one experience, it made a lot more sense for me. Yeah. And and that makes a lot of sense as well. Just thinking about the fact that he thought he could tame the beast and he can't. And when, when you look at, at Gordy, a chimpanzee, chimpanzees are smart, but they can't speak English. They can't speak like words. They use sign language. And so that should hint at, even though he can understand him and they were communicating, I believe, I don't know if I inferred this or whatever, but it, he was the way that Gordy was signing. It was like, what happened to the family? And it was like, he was coming out of this like whack-a-mole trance that he was in and the fist bump and then the, the gunshot. So it makes perfect sense that Juke at uh, Jupiter's, see, now I'm going to try to think of it at, at his little camp there is using it as an opportunity to really do self-exploitation. Because if this is all you're known for, if you're going to be hyper-famous for the thing that maybe you're not proud of, maybe you're scared of, if that's the only way you can make a living, I mean, he is he's traumatized. I mean, how else? I, I don't think that he, as an actor, the character, is blackballed. I don't think he is seen as like, oh my gosh, that child actors, we can never hire him because he's always going to be known for this. No, he'll be known for that, but it's not like he was part of some kind of scandal. I mean, there there are actors out there who don't get hired because of bad things that they've done. They're they're not actors out there who have gone through hardship and will not get jobs because of it. And so I think for him he can't get past that. He couldn't get past those moments. And so he leans in deeply to this idea, well, if if I'm going to make a living at doing this, then I want to be able to at least maximize that benefit, which is why he has the secret is the secret room. And and really it speaks to the obsession that people have with fiction. The, the this idea of Trekkies and Star Wars people that, you know, don't mess with my stuff. And I'm like, you didn't write that stuff. You were a consumer first and foremost, and you just started buying the paraphernalia and now you think you own it. That couple that he describes paying him like what, $10,000 to spend the night in there. And he jokes, like, I don't know what they did in there, but I'm like, I, I don't know if, I don't think that he even cares at that point because it's really about if this is all I'm going to be known for, let's just exploit it. And I think what happens is, in some ways, the way I interpreted it, which can be uh, the way that, that you see it, you know, being able to think you tame the beast, I think that he was at a point where if this is all I have, it's almost like sacrificial. He was like, okay, if it's going to come and get me, it's going to come. Because at that point, he saw, he was watching the people, you know, being sucked up. And I'm sure in some way, shape, or form, he was thinking, well, I'll either get sucked up or I won't, but it's not going after the horse 
and it's in the daytime. So clearly I don't have control of this thing. Now I'm probably reading too much into that. That's a theory. I think yours is stronger because it ties into the little subplot with, with Gordy. But I do think there's something compelling about his character. I think his character I really latched onto because it in and of itself could have been its own little short film or its own little story, its own little Twilight Zone episode. And I like how it fits into this. I just, it, it sort of stood out a little bit more than, than OJ's and, and, uh, and M's. Yeah. I think if there's a weakness in the story, and this is probably why I haven't gone like full five stars on this movie for reference is it's hanging out at like my 4.5 because I do have a little bit of a question about the plot tightness here because of what you just said. So we've seen it happening from afar. So we know he's had some sort of sacrifice for Jean Jacket and he's he's done this experience. So my guess was that at this point he's only sacrificed the horses that OJ has been supplying him with, which we learned. Because otherwise, if he's been sacrificing humans this whole time, like where are the like where is somebody coming to check out like why these dozens of people have disappeared off the face of the earth, <laughs> yeah, right? Right. And so I think he's only sacrificing the horse. And so people are seeing this spectacle and they're believing it's a trick, right? They're believing it's some sort of neat toy or whatever. And so he accomplishes that. And that's part of why I think he then has his co-host who has the mangled face come and see it. Like, I don't think he would have willingly submitted all of those people to their deaths. I think like you said, I think what you're saying is right. I think once this isn't a time when the animal is out of control and the animal's like, no, I'm really hungry. And so you thought I was just here for the horse, but guess what? I'm taking everything. Right. And in that point, yeah, maybe it is self-sacrificial at some point. Cause you're right. I mean, I think he's just caught up in it too. Honestly, I think it's like, even when you think you own the spectacle, you can, get swept up in it by yourself. Um, it's so easy to have that happen. So it's just a really interesting way in which all of that stuff works together. And I think it's it's great imagery. I love Jean Jacket and the design of Jean Jacket and watching him go around and chase him down. So you were saying earlier that you're not a fan of the windsock puppets uh, and and how they worked to essentially take down jean jacket i i'm not opposed to them i again okay. i think it just leans into the, the the absurdity of it um i think about the time frame in which they get all those things set up and um you know i, I just have to suspend my disbelief i didn't hate it by any means it was it was fun i mean and it, and, it, and if you go back to the the cinematography, the way it looks is pretty phenomenal. You've got this like track of windsock puppets that are just floating in the wind. And so it looks amazing. Um, it just seemed a little, little far fetched, but if the point of that is to have some fun, then absolutely. It was not distracting by any means. I was just like, okay, windsock puppets. Let's, let's, that's cool. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I, I think I, at that point was checked into what Kaluuya was saying in that quote that I mentioned earlier, where at that point I'm just there for the spectacle. Like I'm enjoying this as a blockbuster and I'm turning off a little bit of the seriousness points. Cause I'm just like, all right, 
I'm ready to see this thing go on a rampage. And it's cool that at this point, the horse people, the people known for being able to interact with animals and help to kind of control them somewhat are the ones who are able to help manipulate this situation and like find a way to beat it. And I just thought it was really cool to kind of have the thought of like, let's put this wire let's let's take these flags and like have it suck these things up because it's going to get caught up in its stomach because it can't eat those it can't digest those things and and that's believable with the preface of the plastic horse or the fake horse where it it's like it gets stuck in its like alien throat if you will and then spits it out so it's a great precursor to help me go yeah I can I can see that it's like you know if it had like a if there were sound effects for the for Jean Jacket's throat that might be it maybe not but yeah Probably it was so. I mean yeah it could be even the dad by the way gets killed by looking up it's almost like this movie could have been called Don't Look Up if Don't Look Up had not had taken the title uh, <laughs> right. from the, from it like six months earlier because he gets killed because he's looking up at the spectacle in the sky that's and and it I don't think this is an accident that the coin goes straight through his eye. That's how he dies. It gets him in the actual visual piece of his body. It's like, I, there's just, I don't know. I just love these details Peel thinks about. And, and maybe they don't all perfectly work, but I, I find it fascinating and really cool when he attempts to put all of these little things into the film, peppered throughout it. There's a speed reference. Did you get the speed reference? Did you hear that? I didn't. So it's when the TMZ guy comes and it's, I think, I don't remember. I think it might be Angel, but somebody says, pop quiz, guys. Oh, yeah. What happens when an electric bike going 60 miles per hour hits an anti-electric field going in the opposite direction? That's a speed reference. That's a great shot, too. That's such a great Uh, shot, It's phenomenal. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's a poltergeist reference. When Jean Jacket comes and somebody goes, it's here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. And I just, I thought, I love that stuff. Like I, and these are the things a lot of times you don't pick up on, on a first viewing, right? Because you're still processing all of this stuff all at once. But uh, I I just thought that those were fun little uh, nuggets that peel through into the script and stuff. Yeah. Did you think that OJ survived? So in the end... Movie's over. M. Jean Jacket has unfurled itself into blossom flower, whatever mode, which is really interesting and looks gorgeous. Didn't make any sense to me the first time around. I was like, what is going on? I I think it's now I've come to think that probably it's more of like a sign of like vulnerability. The closed up nature of the way it operates normally, it has been exposed and in doing so, its form is like this beautiful, gorgeous thing. But anyway, she's able to take it down, right? They, she finishes the deal. And the last scene we we have is like OJ standing at the opening of the jupe, whatever that we can't remember what it's called, <laughs> and her seeing him there uh, with the dirt all up, you know, dusty sky and him on the horse. Do you think it's a vision? Do you think he survived? Well, first of all, it's Jupiter's claim. I finally looked it up. It's Thank you. <laughs> so for the listeners out there yelling Jupe. at us, 
Oh, Jupe! Jupiter's claim. That's why. It's Oh. Is it now a five star movie for you? Because of that <laughs> No. No, okay. it's not. That's just, pretty dumb. That but a little bit. It's funny. Um, I like the ambiguity. I'd like to believe no, nope, that he did not survive because of the fact that he was sacrificing. I mean, that was his intent. I think it would be too much of a bow wrapped up on this movie to have him come back. Although at the same time, it wouldn't be far-fetched to have him survive. I just think that a movie like this isn't, it's not cut and dry because it's got just some goofy twists and turns. So watching him appear, to me, I felt like that was sort of her way of maybe reconciling or saying, you know, okay, this is it. I'm I'm going to be in charge of this. And this is this is the legacy that I'm going to be a part of. Because again, going back to her initial like when they first start interacting after they get fired from the from the commercial set, she he gets mad at her because he's like, Stop self promoting. You're promoting the ranch. Stop promoting yourself. And she goes, Look, the ranch is my side hustle. This is who I am. And so by the end of the movie, when he comes back, I think it's her way of saying, look, those things have switched. I I am now, I'm the keeper. I am the one who is getting the chance to move this thing forward when I didn't have that with Jean Jacket. You know, when Jean Jacket was supposed to be my horse. And when you sold or when you, when you made Jean Jacket something else, that took away any inkling I had to be a part of this thing. And so throughout the movie, we see her partnering with her brother building that great relationship, which I think is really good. I love their chemistry. I love their dynamic. It's such a, both a contrast and a similarity. You can tell that they are brother and sister, but they're just completely different ambitions. So by the end of the movie, that vision to me is her way of reconciling the fact that she can find a life doing this thing and, you know, building off of this photo and again, going into, because we don't get like, okay, what happened 10 years later? So my assumption is just that, she made money, saved the ranch, and now they're known for a dual threat thing, being <laughs> being the descendants of the first black man to be in pictures and also to be the people that own this picture of an amazing alien. So he, to me, I think he was a ghost or a vision or reconciliation in her mind. Okay, that's interesting. I like that reading of it. I like to believe that he lived simply because he's the smartest and it's easy to get the names mixed up. It's lucky. The horse is lucky. That's also something that plays into this. He's riding lucky. And I feel sure. Like yeah. Lucky because he's riding lucky. We never see him die. We never see him get sucked up. And it's only kind of implied that he possibly gets caught. So I'd like to believe that all of this happens and she gets to save the day but we still get our great moment of sibling sacrificial love where he's willing to die if that's what it takes in order to keep her safe and that they end up both winning in the end. So I, I want to believe gotcha. that that's probably just the optimist in me. I think it's pretty cool that it can be read either way, though, and that it's ambiguous, but not overly like concentrated on it's just a quick shot of him that we see and you can just take that however you want as you walk out of this big awesome blockbuster spectacle that you've seen and it doesn't 
linger on that or make it into something that's a bigger deal. Peel really does just kind of let you have it and take it away. And at that point, and I think that's Mm -hmm. one thing that I like about movies like this. And I really respected about this. The more that I saw it and I thought about it was, you know, he is going for this mashup of styles by a lot of different type of directors that we know and we have loved their films. And it is at its heart, a blockbuster. It's got his smart sensibilities to it, but it is there to entertain you first and foremost. And I feel like they accomplished that um, at least to a, a large degree. So that's all I got. I'm glad that you had a good time with it. Yeah. And I'll probably end up checking out the special features and it may entice me to watch it again at some point, but Alas, not next week, because next week we are continuing our coverage of Oscar movies that we missed, and we are covering everything, any, everything, everywhere, all at once, or as it's known by in its short form, E-E-A-A-O. <laughs> E-I-E-I-O? Old McDonald yeah, yeah. had a farm. It's, yeah, E-E-A-A-O. We've already seen the farming movie. Sorry. <laughs> So this week we're on a ranch, next week we're on a farm, right? Is that what this is all about? No, sir. You are in for a treat. Patrick has not seen it, folks. So he has no idea what is about to hit him. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully it won't be an alien that looks like a flower at the end. Mind blown. Oh, there's something even funnier. But anyway. Okay. Carry on. Good deal. Well, yeah. So join us for that conversation. Enjoy the rest of your week. Hope you enjoyed listening. And check us out on the Now Playing Network. And Aaron, thanks for this great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.